Do you wonder if others are dealing with the same project management challenges as you? Not sure where to turn for guidance and leadership? Office Hours are in session as we discuss project management and PMOs with global leaders, hearing their story and learning their secrets to success. Our goal is to empower you and help you elevate your PMO and project management career to new heights. Welcome back to Project Management Office Hours with your host, PMO Joe. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you from the Phoenix Business Radio X studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management. As we finish up another year, I just want to thank our listeners, of course, for your loyalty and feedback over the years. Uh, Hard to believe next year we're going to be starting our fourth year of the show, which I don't know where the first three went, but uh, fantastic times. And so thank you to all our listeners. And of course, thank you to all of our guests who've joined us from around the world. This year with COVID, we changed our structure slightly to have just one guest on instead of two, but we still had 31 guests join us uh, throughout the year from Australia, Canada, India, the UK, and U.S., Uh, covering such a broad range of topics of project management, PMOs, uh, behavioral and neuroscience, the new PMP exam, the new PMBOK digital project management, PPM software change management, agile performance reviews, veteran services, uh, you name it. We hit on so many different topics that have an impact in our industry. Uh, And of course, all of this is possible because of the Phoenix Business Radio X team. So thank you to everybody who helps make that happen. This is amazing that we're now over 27 million plays and downloads total in the three plus years we've been doing this or three years total we've been doing this. And something of that magnitude doesn't happen by yourself. So certainly thank you to Karen Nowicki who uh, drives the train over here. So thank you, Karen. Kendra Maples who stepped in uh, quite often this year and did an amazing job. Angie Shields who helps on all of our shows and everybody back at the Business Radio X headquarters who helps us as well. So thank you to the team uh, for really making this be possible. I also want to thank our sponsor, the PMO Squad. They're the premier PMO consulting firm in the U.S., offering PMO as a service, agile and project management resources, PMO consulting, and, of course, training for all of your delivery needs. You can check them out at www.thepmosquad.com. And of course, everyone should go out and visit projectmanagementofficehours.com to check out uh, all of our upcoming episodes and, of course, subscribe to catch any episodes you may have missed in the past. So with that, we will jump into our show, and I'm super excited today as our final guest of 2020 to have Kieran Bondale joining us. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. And you are joining us from outside Toronto, Canada. So we continue our uh, streak of international guests. Uh, So if you can just take a moment to introduce yourselves to our listeners and let them know a little bit more about you. Absolutely. Um, Kieran Bondale, I'm a uh, project management uh, focused professional for the last 25 years or so. Came up through the ranks of leading projects, the leading project management offices to consulting with organizations, trying to improve their organizational project management maturity. Um, Spent about, I'd say, 18 years splitting my time between agile and traditional project management and project delivery. 
And in my most recent uh, incarnation, as it were, um, I've been teaching courses in the domain project management and agile, working with a small boutique firm out here in Toronto, Canada, um, serving the needs of our North American clients. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to a, a great chat today. So let's talk some project management. Of course, as we do with all of our guests, we all have our own story, right? Our, our personal story of the different twists and turns that we've taken throughout our career to get where we're at today. What are some of those uh, experiences that you've had on your journey that would uh, you'd be willing to share with our audience? Absolutely. So uh, I think I'll touch on three key highlights. Um, back in, I think it was 1997 or so, I was a few years out of university. I was working in a technical capacity. I've got a bachelor's in computer science. I was leveraging that to do technical hands-on work. Some of it was technical leadership, but never had it been actually branded with the moniker project management. And uh, I was working for a small services company and uh, my manager, the, uh, the director of professional services, he must have seen something in me. I don't know what it was, um, but out of the blue, one day he kind of pulled me aside and he said, Kieran, I want to send you on a project management course. And at that time, that was like telling, telling me, Kieran, I want to send you for uh, a colonoscopy. Uh, <laughs> just not something I was particularly enthused about because I was a techie. I wanted to be a gearhead for the next 10 years at least. But he said, no, I'm seeing something in you. I'm seeing how you're interacting with people, the relationship side of the equation. Um, seeing how you present, how you communicate, this might be an alternate interesting career path to you or for you. He sent me on a course. Uh, thankfully, the course was uh, in, um, in Louisiana, and uh, it was New Orleans. And uh, just, just the decor, the atmosphere, the ambiance of, of the place we were at, where the course was being held, the folks I was with, it kind of made me more receptive to what I was hearing, and something clicked. And when I went back, I thanked him and I said, you know, this sounds interesting. Where can I learn more? And he introduced me to the PMI. In his company, he had been one of the first uh, people in Canada that had become PMP certified. And he said, you know, you're a ways away from this, but why don't you learn more about PMI? I'll pay for your membership. Join a local chapter. And as they say, the rest is history. That was mm -hmm. roughly about uh, 25 years ago, 25, 21 years ago. Uh, and so since then, I've had opportunities that if I hadn't latched onto them, I wouldn't maybe be where I am now. Another case in point, about eight or nine years after I got into the domain, I had led a whole bunch of projects and I was kind of thinking, well, what's next? And I'd applied for a role with um, the so a small software subsidiary of a much bigger company to uh, just be a senior project manager. And as often happens in the hiring process, it went cold for a month, two months, didn't hear anything. Out of the blue, they call me in and they say, well, you know what? The leader of the PMO left. How would you like to uh, lead a PMO? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I've never done that before. I'm happy to lead projects. What is this all about leading a PMO? I don't know the first thing about PMOs. Um, but I, I, was, I made the smart move. I said, yes. It's one of those lessons I like to tell people is that if you think you can do a job, even though if it's a stretch, go for it. It's going to be a great learning opportunity, and it'll open doors that otherwise would have never been opened. And over the course of the next year and a half, I learned a lot through the school of hard knocks. I learned things about PMOs, which you probably don't see in too many books, especially not at that time. 
Um, I learned the hard way that what can cause a PMO to fail. And the PMO I was in, it eventually ended up failing, not because of anything that I or my team did, but purely as a result of not lining up the volume of champions that were needed to be able to sustain the value proposition or to be able to commit to sustain the funding for that organization. The final turning point I'll mention is about three to four years ago, um, I was working within uh, one of our big Canadian banks here, TD Bank, and I was holding a pretty good position. I was a senior manager within the Enterprise Project Management Office. The team that I was, uh, was responsible for were setting the standards and the methods for all the project managers across the bank. And as you can well imagine, a bank has hundreds, if not thousands, of project managers. So this was a pretty important role to be in. And my boss and I had a great relationship. And she had definitely made it clear that if I wanted to, I was, in a, I was in line to be able to kind of climb the corporate ladder, get into an executive position if that was what I so desired. Kind of out of the blue, I got a call from, uh, from this gentleman that I had uh, communicated with briefly or I met briefly when looking at a role on the member advisory committee for PMI's registered education provider program. And he, at the time, he'd asked me, would I be interested in maybe throwing my hat in the ring to be the next MAG volunteer? And things hadn't worked out or I hadn't uh, been selected for that, but we'd stayed in touch. Out of the blue, he contacts me and he says, hey, would you ever think about teaching project management? And as it turned out at that very moment when I was in that role at the bank, a lot of the time I'd been spending was in teaching people about agile and project management. And I felt, you know, after having led projects, led PMOs, consulted with organizations, teaching was something that suddenly started to feel very attractive to me. And it was just the right place at the right time. And that's how I ended up joining World Class Productivity. I walked away from this, uh, this huge organization to join a small boutique firm to deliver project management and agile training. So those are just maybe three, three kind of turning points in my career today. Well, and I think those are, you know, twists and turns that we can all relate to, right? Somebody, somewhere along the journey, you have to have that introduction to project management. And so many of our guests on, myself included, I didn't go to become a project manager in my education. Right? At that time, universities didn't even offer courses in project management. And I was a systems consultant, uh, not necessarily a developer or a coder, but I was still working with systems every day to help clients use them better. And my boss said, hey, Joe, how's the project going? And I was like, project? What are you talking about, Dennis? I have no idea what a project is. Uh, but that was my introduction to it as well, right? And, and uh, we had Ben Astinon, another Canadian, a few weeks, uh, months back, and he had talked about the same thing. He was a technologist, and now he's a digital project manager, right? So, all of us have that starting point. What was it when you, when you, was, is there anything that you can kind of identify that flip the switch to say, sure, I'm still a technology person. I'm still a techie, but boy, this really interests me more than the technology component. Absolutely. So I think at the time when I made the switch or I consciously decided to make the switch, I was sort of at the top of my game in one particular technology field, uh, um, being in, or coming from technology yourself, you might uh, have heard of Tiddly Systems, Systems mm -hmm. Management yeah. uh, Technology. It was purchased by IBM uh, many years ago, many, uh, a couple of decades ago. I was sort of the top of the game in Canada for that particular technology. And what I recognized was that to remain on top in any technology domain, 
you're constantly going through the cycle where you're on top and suddenly a new technology emerges and you're back at the bottom and you have to retrain yourself. And after you go through that cycle a few times, it can get pretty tiring. And I took a step back and I said, well, with project management, I'm never going to be the best across the board at anything in project management, but it's lifelong learning. Every day, every interaction, every project I lead, I have an opportunity to get slightly better. It's truly lifelong learning. And to me, that was a lot more attractive than being on this roller coaster of top of the world. Oh, now you got to retrain yourself from the bottom. Project management, I felt, was something that would have more of a linear path where every project that I worked on, every PMO I supported, every client I consulted with, there would be failures, there'd be successes, but I, I would be able to continuously incrementally improve. And that was just incredibly attractive to me. And that continues today where I spend really the majority of my time is spent teaching folks that are from different levels of experience in the domain. And I get as much out of teaching as the learners are getting from myself. I learn as much based on the industries they work for, the experiences they're having, and it just helps me grow and continue to learn and develop. Yeah, what I think is interesting about that story is, you know, I call it pulling up anchors. So we so often, you know, use a boat analogy, we're out on a lake, we're having a good time with our friends, it's a beautiful spot, it's a beautiful day, and one of the friends will say, hey, let's go check out that cove over there. And everyone's like, well, why are we going to do that? We're having a good time here. But you pull up anchor anyway, you go over to the cove, and you have even a better time. And you you never would have known if you didn't pull up anchor and try something new, right? So each of those moments you mentioned, right, your first PM introduction, the PMO leader, then the PMO trainer, if you didn't have the courage to make that change, you never would have had those experiences, right? So, uh, and then even within the training, you talk about what you're still learning from the, the people in your classes. And I think that's a really great term that you use there. Courage, I think, is one of those hidden competencies that we as project management professionals really need to possess because every project you take on, by definition, is unique. And that takes courage. Um, it's really easy to work the same operational process day in, day out, especially when that process is in control. There's very little variation. That doesn't take a lot of courage. But to say, I am leaving this project that maybe did really well. I'm going to take on this other project that has an entirely different scope, different people, different stakeholders, and I'm going to make it succeed. That takes courage, let alone when you reinvent yourself by going from one type of role within the profession to a different role, different organizations, working with different clients. I I mean, project managers, I think it's in their DNA that we have that courage. And sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for that. And the other thing I I like about your story is you mentioned your time as a PMO leader. um, And I, I as just as you, failed in my first PMO, not necessarily from lack of effort, uh, but really nobody ever prepared me to be a PMO leader. There's a lot of material and training uh, out there to become a project manager, but not so much to be a PMO leader. Um, and you hearing you experience that as well is just a, a tale I've heard over and over again from PMO leaders who've struggled because they don't have resources available to them to help them be successful. Yeah, it's really interesting that I mean, PMOs, because, because of my experiences sort of failing with that first PMO, and later on, I, I was in charge of another one, and we had certainly, I'd say, some more success. 
But I've seen enough through many of the clients that I supported, similar challenges. There were some PMOs that were highly successful, others that failed uh, miserably. And I really, over the course of maybe 10 years of writing articles, I've gone back and forth between PMOs as as a good practice, uh, definitely something that can help an organization get to the next level, or do you really need to have them? And I've kind of waffled back and forth between those. I think where the pendulum is is sitting right now, I do see the benefit in well-managed PMOs that are dynamic, that are value-focused. Those I see value in, but they really do have to justify their existence. And I think that's where a lot of them struggle. A lot of the PMO leaders and the staff struggle with being able to justify their existence. You know, on our last show with Cornelius Fickner, I had put a teaser out there for a new project that we're working on uh, that's going to be coming next year for PMO leaders. So I'm going to drop that same teaser. Everybody stay tuned. Uh, in January, uh, we're going to have a new uh, tool or, or a community of tools available for PMO leaders around the world and, and super excited to uh, soon be sharing that with everyone. I think that's going to be very helpful for a a profession that really has been seeking out um, the same sort of support that project management has received. Absolutely. I mean, for uh, for maybe uh, 20 years ago till about a decade ago, it was very common to see accidental PMs. Uh, now, I think uh, over the last decade, what I've seen there's a lot of accidental PMO leaders, and uh, it would be great to get some uh, so, so some good lessons for them to be and tools for them to be able to start from a more predictable, structured type of an approach. You know, also, you, so many of our listeners are at a stage in their career that they can relate to one of your points, right? Because maybe they're just starting or maybe now they're experienced and they're ready for leadership or maybe they're looking for the next experience. If you could have had one piece of advice before you started to become a project manager, what would, what would that be? Because I bet there's a lot of people out there who are probably in need of that same advice. Absolutely. It's all about the people. That's, that's, that's that one piece of advice that I wish um, somebody had kind of tattooed on my forehead or, uh, or beaten into me at an early stage. Because starting from technology, and I think, I mean, it's not a surprise that for many of us that started in technology, project management is something that we're oftentimes accidentally introduced to rather than it, than it being a logical progression the way it might be for somebody that's in the engineering domain where getting to a project manager level is a natural progression to get a certain level of tenure authority, what have you. In technology or or in high tech, uh, it it is really more of that accidental profession. And coming from an analytical technical background, it's very easy to focus on the hard skills, the the, the techniques, the, the tactics of project management, building a schedule, creating network diagrams, uh, identifying risks, um, forming a budget, earn value, those types of hard skills. But that's meaningless if you don't focus on the people. And I learned that the hard way through many of my early projects, where from a technical perspective, the project was managed exceptionally well. But from a people aspect, it was miserably managed. And even though we delivered as defined scope, within budget, on time, the perceived outcome of the project was not as great as it could have been if there had been more time spent on managing 
the expectations and working with people and building bridges. That is absolutely key. So when I was hiring project managers, that would be really where I would tend to focus a lot of my interview time was understanding the people side of the equation for the people that were looking to join my teams is what are some of the failures they've experienced in developing those relationships and managing stakeholders, working through conflict. That was way more important to me than somebody's ability to develop a technically accurate logic diagram. If they're lacking that, I can send them on a course. They can learn that in a matter of a day or two. But the soft skills, you either are born with those for the few lucky people that truly are, or you learn them through the school of hard knocks. And that's what I look for, the scars on the backs, and the wisdom to understand the lessons that come from those. Yeah, I, I, you know, for me, it's the journey from good to great as a project manager is we all start out trying to be technically competent um, and we then hit a ceiling. And then to burst through that, we have to have those power skills, right? The PMI is calling them now or the people skills, right? But the PMO squad, we always talk people over process. I don't really right. care what your methodology is. I can get your people to learn your methodology, but do you have the right people? Exactly, exactly. And I think for project managers that are looking to hedge against career downturns, maybe looking to maybe take a different role at some later point in their lives, those hard skills, you got to have a basic foundation of those. Don't get me wrong. You can't manage a project without them. But the people skills are what are going to help you get into an executive level seat. You don't like have those, you're never going to be able to break through that ceiling. Yeah, we've had uh, several guests uh, in the past who that's been really the the focus of the show. So, you know, people like Dr. Barbara Troutline or Ruth Pierce, Carol Osterwheel, uh, Josh Ramirez and Stephen Fulmer and a whole bunch of others, right, where they're now focusing on the people within project management and creating um, more awareness, uh, the importance of psychological safety uh, and other items related to human interaction to ensure that we know it's a team, right? It's not a project. It's a collection of people producing an outcome. And how do we go about doing that? And I know you're interested in psychological safety as well. Which... Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, if, I, if I have to think about one topic that has really made me sit up and pay attention over the last couple of years, I think I've come somewhat late to it. I think it was always in the back of my mind ever since I started getting into the agile world, because I, I think psychological safety has been sort of imbued in the DNA of agile from the get-go, but it really came to the forefront a couple of years ago. And, and I, I've got a couple of folks to thank for that. I mean, I think uh, Amy Edmondson with the great writing she's done, the Fearless Organization, her TED Talk and her, her articles that she writes in Harvard Business Review, uh, but also Timothy Clark with his book on the four stages of psychological safety, which provide a model for how to go about building safety, whether it's uh, within a single team or trying to take that across a department or an organization. Uh, really great influencers that way opened my eyes to it. And that's why if I think back over 2020, uh, a lot of the writing I've done, a lot of the presentations I've given have focused on that topic because I think you can you can have the right people in the room, you can have good plans, but if people don't inherently feel safe, you're going to get mediocre results. Um, again, projects possess uniqueness and uncertainty, which means that you've got to have creativity, you've got to have innovation. But if folks are afraid to take a chance to put themselves out there, to fess up when they don't know something, to state when they're making an assumption, 
um, your results are not going to be stellar. And so psychological safety to me is one of those leadership competencies, building, being able to build it, that I, I would hope that MBA 101 programs, first year MBA classes, that there's an emphasis on that. Like that's, that's such a key part of leadership as much as we think strategy, marketing, other aspects are, psychological safety has got to be right up there. Yeah, and, and I was kind of drawn to that a few years back with um, Project Aristotle. I don't know if you're mm, familiar with yes. the, uh, the Google study on their own internal teams. And then Carol Osterweil, in her book, Project Delivery, Uncertainty, and Neuroscience, uh, talks about that as well. Based on your practice and, and what you teach and your own experiences, what what are some tips or that you can share with listeners to help them uh, learn more about psychological safety or practice it better with their team and, and be more aware of it? Absolutely. Uh, there, there are other models out there, but this model that I, that I came up with this year, a very simple model that I've been presenting is a three-step model. It's plan it, live it, champion it. So plan it is when you're first assigned to the project, Think about psychological safety and how you're going to bake it into everything that, that your project stands for. So one of the standard practices at the beginning of a project, when a PM is assigned, you go and you meet with your sponsor. That is a great opportunity to have a discussion on psychological safety. Say, we were doing this uncertain endeavor. Let's make it a safe environment for everybody. Get the commitment from your sponsor to that. That way, if down the road, halfway through the project, there's an issue and someone's biting the heads off of your team you've got a sponsor that you can rely on that's going to act as a champion for it. It's also in terms of planning it, it's preparing to, to educate people, educating your stakeholders, educating functional managers, your team members themselves, baking that into the work of the project to help them understand what it is. The second step is about living it. Uh, people are going to take their cues from you. You've got to model the behavior you want to see from your team members, which means that you've got to act in a way that's going to promote safety. Things like, uh, being, not being afraid to say when you've made a mistake, expressing vulnerability, um, not speaking up first, giving others a chance to speak. Uh, there was a great quote that I think Timothy Clark had in his book, which is that uh, leaders who speak first are softly censoring um, their team members. Mm. So don't speak first. Um, and when we get to things like championing it, it's, it's having the courage and giving your team members the freedom and the courage to challenge others when they see actions that are reducing safety. Um, when, when a senior stakeholder is, is taking actions, criticizing people, ridiculing people, it's standing up to them. It's, it's making a stand. It's, it's, it's not saying, oh, that's above my pay grade. It's, it's like that old quote goes, it's like uh, evil flourishes when good people stay silent, right? So that's what we need to do. We need to make those stands. And you just have to look at the case studies, whether it was the, um, the, K, the KLM Pan Am disaster in the Tenerife Islands back in the 70s, whether it's the Space Shuttle Challenger. There's so many cases that we've seen where psychological safety steps over the wall into physical safety, and we just can't ignore it anymore. And I think if people work for a company or a team that is unsafe, they know they have a choice. The world is flat. They're going to go somewhere where they can feel safe, where they can where they can be their best, they can be creative without fear of ridicule, without fear of social stigma. And the the Project Aristotle, right, the Google study of trying to determine what made teams successful, 
they identified five key items. And the number one item to help uh, promote successful teams was psychological safety, followed by dependability, structure, and clarity, meaning, and then impact. Uh, but really, the output of that study said what really mattered was less about who is on the team and more about how the team worked together, right? It's and, exactly. It's all about the relationships, and especially when we're dealing with complex adaptive systems, which a lot of our projects are, it's less about the individual components. It's more about the relationships between them and the interactions. That's where you're going to see success. Maybe just one other parallel I can draw or one other uh, connecting the dots moment with psychological safety. I read uh, Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, uh, at the beginning of this year, and it really resonated with me because I've worked in companies where um, there were good people that were just afraid to speak up because they didn't want to come across as being the bad person. And mediocrity thrived. And Kim Scott's model of radical candor really is such a powerful way to think about it that we're not afraid to provide constructive feedback, but we're doing so taking a, an empathetic stand. We, we feel for the other individual. We're not going to do things that are going to bruise their ego or leave them damaged when we provide feedback. But to provide a culture or to have a culture of radical candor, you got to have psychological safety. If there isn't psychological safety, people are going to be afraid to speak up. They're going to play it safe. They're going to be like, hey, I don't want to take a chance to provide feedback and I get my head chewed off. Um, so, so many of these powerful models that we have out there are based on that underpinning of psychological safety. Very, very important concept. Yeah, interesting. You pick radical candor. We have our PMO squad final newsletter coming out next week. And in it, I uh, list my two favorite reads from this year. And one of them is radical candor. So it, it's great to hear that it had a positive impact on you. And then, of course, earlier this year, we talked with Chris Kopp, uh, who was a guest on the show about performance reviews. And he had referenced radical candor as well. Uh, and for those who haven't had an opportunity to read that book, I'm with you. It is a fantastic book. Uh, everybody should take time to put that in their library or a list of books to read next year if they haven't gotten to it already. So if we think about your career journey again, right, as a project manager, PMO leader, trainer, we've kind of covered the first two of those. If we think now into the third leg of your career, uh, teaching came about. What Do you love teaching? Is it a, a job or a career, right? I mean, which which is it for you? And then what is it about that that makes you feel that way? At this point, I would say it's a career for me. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm in my early 50s, but I'm looking at sort of the Freedom 55 thing. And teaching is attractive because it's a career path that allows you to scale it up, scale it down based on your desire. I mean, it's very hard to say you're a part-time project manager. When you're handed a project, chances are you're already behind the eight ball time-wise, scope-wise. And to say, you know, I just feel like working four hours a day or five days this month, uh, it's just not going to cut it. Uh, on the other hand, teaching does have that benefit. Uh, when you're teaching uh, public courses, um, they're standalone courses, you can take as many or as few as you want to fit whatever else you'd like to do with your life. So it's, it's a good career path uh, for where I am in my life, uh, sort of getting into that semi-retired kind of stage. Uh, it does allow me to focus on a lot of the extracurricular stuff I like to do. What I really enjoy about it and why I made the switch uh, is that I do like the dopamine hit, which is that short-term uh, satisfaction. When you teach somebody something, whether it's a one-day course or a multi-day course, at the end of that, you can see right away if 
it's clicked. If the lights go on, when you ask them, what are you taking away with you? What are you going to apply? And they're able to echo back something that you gave them that they didn't have walking in. That is very gratifying. Not to say that managing projects, leading PMOs, consulting with organizations is not gratifying, but it's a long game. And the older I've got, the more I realize I want some short-term gratification as well. And teaching really addresses that, which is why, and I enjoy that. Every class I teach is another opportunity to work with people and to learn from them, to hopefully impart something to them. And when I'm teaching the same class over and over again, it's a wonderful opportunity to inspect and adapt. Every class I teach, even if I've taught it 15 times, I'm able to learn something and apply that the next time I teach it. Maybe it's the way I deliver a per, uh, an exercise. Maybe it's the way that I try to highlight a particular point. But there's that constant opportunity for inspect and adapt that we have, which we don't necessarily always have when we're managing a bunch of unique separate projects. So a couple of the reasons that I really enjoy the teaching, uh, the teaching thing. Yeah, I'm a, uh, a big sports fan. And in the sports world, uh, one of the sayings out there is those who can't do teach, right? So uh, it seems as if you've been the PM, you've been the PMO leader, you had success, so you obviously could do, right? Why the, the teach then, right? Is it, is it just the gratification part? Is it just the advancement with, through your career cycle? I think it's, it's certainly those two. I think the other part, though, is when you lead a project, you're helping a particular organization. And if you've been a good leader, you're helping that group of team members and maybe other stakeholders you interacted with. But when you teach, you have that opportunity to be a super connector, a, a, a super chained leader, if you will, because the people in your class, if you teach them something that's going to help them take their projects or their organizations, even if it's one step further, they can now starburst that or springboard that across their organizations. And it does become viral. So that ability to influence positive change, I think, I have an ability to do that at a much greater level as an instructor or teacher than I would if I was leading a particular PMO or consulting with one client or, or leading a single project. So it's that opportunity to take, I think, what I've learned uh, many times the hard way and hopefully help folks to avoid some of those pitfalls that I went through and do that on a much broader scale. A great answer. I mean, obviously, same for me with consulting. I left the corporate world because I was helping one company at a time, right? My company improve a project management uh, and started the PMO squad because I knew our reach could be global, right? It, it isn't just with one company. So I completely understand uh, your thinking on that. As far as the teaching goes, what are you teaching, right? Is it a PMP certification type training or is it more uh, project management based? What's the type of material that you guys train? Absolutely. So we do a combination of certification and non-certification courses. Um, they cover the domain from traditional project management fundamentals into um, soft skills, into agile. And we do offer certification courses for the PMP as well as for Discipline Agile as well. So I'm a Discipline Agile certified instructor. I've uh, been offering those courses as well. One of our partners is the University of Waterloo. I worked with them to pull together a curriculum of advanced Agile courses that they were able to offer over the last few years as part of an advanced Agile certificate. So uh, 
end-to-end, our company offers about maybe 15, 16 different courses. I teach about 70, 80% of those courses, and we offer those both in a public capacity as well as to corporate clients as well. And certainly since the beginning of this year or since March, it's been done in a virtual manner, which was probably one of the bigger learnings that I had this year was for someone that had been, uh, I would say, a bit of a Luddite when it came to the concept of virtual education. Uh, even though my roots are in technology, I was one of those folks that said, no, if I can't see the whites of their eyes, if they're not in the classroom <laughs> with me, it's not real teaching. Um, well, the choice was, do I do I sort of call it quits for the next year until there's a vaccine? Um, or do I buckle down and figure out how to do this thing virtually? And uh, after some initial resistance, I, uh, I bought into it. I drank purple Kool-Aid. And uh, I, I've been really fortunate to have learned a lot about virtual delivery over the course of this year. And um, we, we were very fortunate that we ran across the, the Miro platform. We use Miro for uh, hosting our exercises. And it's just been really a wonderful experience all around. So I, uh, I'm always interested to get uh, people's perspective on the post-COVID world, right? So it's going to be a year, maybe two years of creating a new normal. So what does training look like post-COVID? Are people just going to stay online? Will we go back to in-person exclusively? Do you think there's a mix? What, somebody that's in the middle of that practice, right? Where do you think we're headed? I think we're going to see a hybrid. You're going to see there are going to be people that have got enough of a shot to the gut out of this, uh, this, this calamity that they're going to be like, yeah, I don't think I want to be in a large uh, public gathering with a bunch of folks for quite a while. And yet they're going to want to continue to invest in personal development or their companies are going to want to invest in them for personal development. So for them, virtual delivery will continue to be a thing. Um, I think one of the benefits we saw of virtual delivery was the ability to reach a much broader audience than we would have uh, otherwise. Um, in the first uh, Discipline Agile course I gave this year, I had a gentleman from Australia. I mean, he had to wake up at, uh, in the middle of the night to attend the class. But he was definitely there and he was engaged. There was just no way we could have made that happen before we introduced this virtual model. You're going to see people that are going to want the only in-person experience. And so we will see those traditional classes happen again. But I think you're also going to see a mix. You're going to have classes where some people are going to be there in person. Some might be virtual. And so doing kind of this mixed modality mode teaching will be something that will be really interesting. And in the early days, especially when we're in the situation where there's some people that either are immune or they've been vaccinated, whereas there's others that have not, we could be in situations where you have a classroom that is a larger classroom with fewer people in it. And instead of having in-person exercises where people are sitting closely together and working together, they're all in the classroom, but maybe they're interacting in the virtual world using platforms like Miro or so on. And so um, I think there's a bunch of really interesting possibilities that emerge out of this. So from our side as, as instructors, I think we just need to leave ourselves the flexibility to try new things out and, and, and maybe give everything a fair shake, decide whether it's for us or not. And again, my, my mantra is inspect and adapt, learn as we go and make it better every, every opportunity we get. It's definitely some learnings going on. You know, for instance, I think back, a lot of the gyms have had to close. Everybody has taken to YouTube and TikTok and others to become a, a physical trainer, right? They're putting their own videos out there of the way to do things. And they're really not professionals at it, right? They're just taking, they're 
understanding the current events and taking an opportunity to try to build a business out of that. Absolutely. It, I mean, a great example of that, which I would have never thought of is, uh, as I mentioned, we use the Miro platform for virtual collaboration for our exercises. Through the process of adapting our courseware or our exercises over to Miro, I was introduced to the Miro community, started to um, contribute to that Miro community, and through those contributions, actually was able to get some moonlighting gigs helping folks that were looking to take their workshops and their facilitation work online and didn't necessarily have the technical skills to do that as comfortably as I was able to. And so providing guidance, helping them design boards, things of that nature. So, I mean, a a separate, albeit I can't live on it, but a separate revenue stream that just would have never emerged if we weren't in the world we're living in today. Is there any concern with that, that these uh, fly-by-night trainers are going to come out there and weaken the offerings that an established firm such as the one you've been working for for over 25 years now they've been in business so now they're competing with these people that can just you know go out and buy a webcam a microphone and pop up and do training and maybe they're not really good at what they're doing is there concern that we're diluting the the offerings because of this technology that has available to everybody i think there's a risk there but i think what's great about the profession that we're in is that quality counts. It's not just about sort of what you know, it's about the experiences you have. It's that ability to connect with the audience to say, hey, I've never worked a day in my life in your industry, but I know enough about the challenges that project managers face that I can actually have a coherent conversation with you about it and suggest some things that have worked in my past. Folks can certainly kind of invest in the technology to start giving themselves a soapbox to to preach project management. But if they haven't had that experience, it's going to come across very quickly as being uh, paper learned, but really no practical advice behind it. Um, And on top of that, being an instructor, being a facilitator, teaching does require a certain personality and a certain set of skills. And I've known a lot of project managers that are good project managers, but they would be horrible instructors as well. So I, I feel pretty confident that quality does prevail, especially in our profession. And working for a smaller company, the benefit is we're not having to appeal to thousands of clients. As long as we're getting a certain number of courses every month, every year, we can stay solvent. And and relationships count. It goes back to what I said at the beginning about that lesson in project management. Relationships count. The clients that we've worked with that have good things to say about us they're going to keep coming back to us. They're going to say good things about us to their friends. And, and that's how we're going, to sell, we're going to sell our courses. Yeah, it makes sense. And Cornelius uh, and I talked about that on the last episode as well with podcasts, right? The, the same thing. Everyone wants to be a podcaster now and talk about what they know with project management until they find out how much work it's involved to actually be a podcaster, right? And I would imagine the same thing with the one-off trainers. Uh, it's fun to do a course or two, but then when you have to take into account the marketing, the sales, the tax, the accounting on the back end, all of a sudden a business is not as uh, easy to do as a one-off course. So yeah, I'm with you. I think quality is going to come to the top, right? And that's definitely, Joe, why, why four years ago I chose to join a firm as opposed to uh, kind of hanging up my own shingle. I mean, I've been an independent consultant before. I was a very successful independent consultant in the project management consulting space. But when it came to teaching, I recognized that the uh, that barrier to entry 
to being successful was fairly high. While I might have been able to line up a client here, a client there, teaching tends to be transactional. It's not like you're consulting where you might be delivering a project for six months, nine months. When you're teaching a group of people, the classes are done, that's it. you got to find another client. And it could take a while to create the critical mass to make it sustainable. So from that perspective, I found it was much more rewarding and uh, uh, less risky to look at actually joining an established organization. I'll put you on the spot here with my next question. Uh, so you do lots of teaching, right? Uh, you're, as you mentioned, you're learning from them. What's the one thing or a couple of things uh, that you think is the hardest for new project managers to pick up on, right? Because we as experienced project managers, we kind of know everything about it, right? We're, it's hard to surprise us with something new, but if you're just learning how to do this, or if you're a junior and you're learning kind of that next step, What's that hardest concept for them to grasp a hold of? Stakeholder, stakeholder management, stakeholder expectations uh, management is, is the most difficult. Um, project managers are kind of juggling uh, fireballs, standing over a pit with alligators jumping at them. And it's really easy to focus on the who screams loudest, which might be your project customer or your sponsor. But many times those aren't the stakeholders that might cause you the greatest grief in the long run. And it can be really tempting to forget about that stakeholder that's kind of staying quiet off to the side, only to realize further down into your project, they're the one that's actually going to cause you the biggest troubles. And by the time you realize that, it may be too late to be able to get your project back on track. Um, I think that discipline about identifying stakeholders, analyzing stakeholders, uh, building relationships with them. And then making a point of touching base with them on a regular basis, not assuming that your stakeholder register is static, keeping it as a living artifact. It's so important. I mean, to me, project management and discipline go hand in hand. It's so easy for us to kind of throw up our hands and say, I don't have time for going through these processes in a repetitive manner. Um, there, there's fires I got to put out. Well, the reason the fires are there is because maybe the discipline was lacking from the get-go. And if we show a bit of that discipline, we can start to be more proactive with the profession. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, it goes back to the people skills, right? And understanding how to read the room and, and the virtual room, right? And understanding how to interact with those stakeholders uh, that may not be right in front of you on a daily basis, like your team or your sponsor, uh, but carry just as much importance to the success of the project. Yeah, the story I always like to tell when I'm teaching uh, our project management fundamentals class and I get to the chapter on stakeholder management, um, I always like to use the analogy of uh, the raptors in uh, the velociraptors in the original Jurassic Park, where um, that, uh, that, that British chap is saying something about it's not the raptor in front of you that you got to watch out for. It's the one that's off on the side. That's the one that's going to kill you. That's how I like to portray my stakeholders, that it's not the one in front of you jumping up and down, making a scene, uh, consuming all of your time. It's that quiet one off on the side that might be like around the water cooler, sticking the knife in your back or going and talking to your boss and getting you in trouble. That's the one that you got to pay attention to. Yeah, great insights. I love that analogy. It makes me... Uh... Think back to the different raptors throughout my career that got me from behind uh, because I didn't have my head on a swivel the way I needed to. <laughs> You've also talked about uh, PMI and how uh, it was they've been instrumental in, in your career as, at the beginning, especially, in learning their practices. 
What's your, uh, I hate to say what's your thoughts about PMI. That's a, a terrible question, I guess. Uh, <laughs> After being involved with that organization for, um, it's coming up on uh, probably 21, 20, 22 to 23 years now, I think I've been involved with PMI. I was a director on the board of the PMI Lakeshore chapter for six years. I've participated in PMP exam item writing sessions. I've contributed to standards and practice guides. I've contributed to Standards Plus, the PMBOK 7th edition. It's a love-hate relationship for me. Um, I kind of view PMI uh, with, uh, as being this, this, this being with two heads. Uh, one side of PMI is the side that I love. It's the, uh, the volunteer opportunities. It's the community outreach. It's the standards. It's the practice guides. It's the free resources. It's the uh, education foundation. It's a lot of the good that they do. The other side, though, is what I like to call the, the bureaucracy and the mercenary side of PMI. And being working for a registered education provider, I started to see that more and more. I'm getting better insights into that, where there's that, that concern that is PMI a partner or are they a competitor? And more and more, I kind of get that sense that they're trying to compete with us rather than truly trying to partner with us. So I see the good, I see the bad. Um, I still renew my membership every year. I uh, still renew my membership in the chapter every year, but I'm more cautious, I would say, these days. I volunteer my time. I spend a lot of time supporting PMI, but I'm cautious. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I'm with you, right? Um, we're grateful for uh, the work they've helped. Uh, you know, I run a nonprofit organization, VPMMA, that assists veterans transitioning to civilian project management careers. Uh, and we had great support from PMI this year. Sunil Prashar had shot a video for us to help us promote that event that we did. So to that part, you know, the foundation, the the giving side of it, we are very grateful. Uh, we've had members of uh, PMI come on and talk about the changes to the PMP and PMBOK and, and being very open and honest about why they did those changes. So sharing with the community has been great. Uh, but certainly there is that competitive component that's now in play. And you're not an REP anymore, right? You're going to be an ATP. ATP, you got it. Uh, right. And you have to teach uh, live courses now. And I mean, there are definitely changes that they're making it harder for the practitioner, uh, the teacher, the instructor out there uh, to be a hold of. But as a professional services firm, I like the principled approach they're moving towards. It's, it's more about why you're doing it, not how you're doing it. So I like that. So I'm, I'm with you, right? There's, there's a bit of love-hate that goes on there. But I think, you know, when you're the, the big guy in the room, everybody's going to have that same view of you. Correct. I mean, I think uh, in the early days, they spent a lot of time on the advocacy and evangelizing. And uh, even though they were a large association, there was still, I would say, a certain amount of humility. I'm not seeing as much of that humility anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a challenge, right? And and we work more now with global organizations, and there's other global organizations out there that they're really competing with PMI, and of course they're uh, much smaller scale. So we'll see how the landscape plays out over the next decades. Plus, uh, there are probably some changes in the horizon, but who knows? It's one of those necessary evils, right? You, you we need to be engaged with PMI, and there's benefits, right? As a former president of a chapter, and you talk about volunteerism, there's probably several stories you can tell about success and how that's helped groom your career today as a leadership role and other volunteers within those chapters. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think on a personal level, 
I have immensely benefited from the relationship with PMI. It's now looking at it um, through the eyes of a partner that I start to see some of the challenges that, that, that have emerged uh, of late. Yeah, and I think the we within the industry can't be yes men to the people that hold the keys to the the golden goose, right? I mean, we we do have to challenge them and let them know what the industry's feeling. So I think it's uh, a healthy respect uh, within the love hate relationship to ensure that they know what the industry's feeling. So I always enjoy those discussions to get other people's perspectives as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've shared with us a. a a great journey, right? From just starting out to now uh, going through to the point of training and teaching the next generation of project managers. If if there's, you know, kind of some wisdom that you've gained over the years, a, a takeaway to share with the listeners, uh, any kind of nuggets that you think that would be, people could really pick up on and take advantage of, of your experiences. I mean, maybe there's, there, there's a couple out there that I could share. Um, Three, in fact, that come to mind specifically in the project management domain. One is, again, going back to the topic of psychological safety. It's it's commit to it. Even though there's a lot of press about it, it's seeing certainly a lot more mainstream coverage than maybe a decade ago. It's not still as common a thing as we'd like to see, that leaders talk it, support it, champion it. Um, Your opportunity to differentiate yourself is to commit to it now and to get better and better and better at building it within the context that you're leading. Um, The second thing I would highlight is around knowledge and finding ways to share and capture the knowledge of a team in a manner that truly delivers value. Uh, I did a webinar um, for projectmanagement.com about a year ago called Putting the Learn Back in Lessons Learned. Uh, it's time for us to ditch that concept of lessons learned. We don't learn a lesson until you've applied it and you've seen some benefit. Figure out how do we bake continuous improvement into our work as project leaders, uh, whether that's on the agile side, doing things like retrospectives, whether it's just taking that opportunity when something has happened that's new and innovative to say, what have we learned from it and finding ways to share it. And the final thing I'd point out, of all the knowledge areas, risk management is the one that I found has been probably the weakest implemented in most of the organizations I've worked with. Risk management is something that will save your bacon in spades. Uh, If we use the analogy of insurance uh, for project management, that project management is insurance for successful delivery of your project, well, risk management is insurance for successful project management. So if you're going to invest, invest wisely, but make it effective. I, I always like to quote Dr. David Hilson with his quote about risk is uncertainty that matters. That is so key. The reason risk management is implemented poorly is because we don't make it matter. Make it matter. Learn more about it. Figure out your stake value, your stakeholders. Understand what makes them tick and then position risk in terminology and ways that are going to make them sit up and pay attention to you. Those would be the three that I think Sharon Joe. Those are, are a great three, right? I, I think uh, all of us in our industry uh, should be aware of those, and I think we can take uh, great wisdom from them. So, Karen, uh, here we are, end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oops, excuse me. <coughs> oh, tickle on my throat, everybody. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you for being on the show. What's the best way for those in the industry to get in touch with you after today and, and learn more about what you have going on? 
For sure. So a couple of ways, uh, certainly feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Kieran Bondale. There's not, there's, as far as I know, there's no other Kieran Bondales out there. You'll probably locate me pretty easily. Um, I also blog on a weekly basis. I've been doing that since, uh, for the last 11 years, uh, kbondale.wordpress.com. If you go to my LinkedIn profile, you'll find a link to it there. Um, it's my thoughts on project management, change management, agile, uh, team leadership, um, weekly basis, over 600 articles, and uh, I've got no desire to stop anytime soon. That's awesome. Uh, again, thanks so much for being with us. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners. Please be sure to go out and visit projectmanagementofficehours.com. Uh, to see all of our past shows and a list of upcoming uh, shows we have coming into next year. We've got our first quarter pretty well locked in for next year. We'll start off the brand new year with Billy Mwape, who will be joining us from Zambia. We have Amira, Amira Mahazahari from Australia, Bruce Gay from the U.S., Fatima Abuchi also from Australia, and Bill Dow joining us uh, as well. And, of course, we have a fantastic lineup for the remainder of the year. And we look forward to our fourth year of Project Management Office Hours. Also, a reminder that these shows are recorded, so please be sure to subscribe to Project Management Office Hours podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, Pod, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, or your podcast platform of choice. Of course, thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad, Visit thepmosquad.com to learn more about the purpose-driven PMO and all of their project management services. That's it for now, and that's it for this year. Office hours are now closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Management Office Hours with PMO Joe. You're not alone in your project management journey. We're here to help you achieve your goals. Subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on your favorite podcast platform to catch all of our episodes and hear industry leaders share their story and secrets to success.